What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain everybody knows that running and sprinting is a great practice for the human body. But the problem is sometimes your legs are tired or sometimes your legs are hurt or sometimes you're just tired of running or sometimes you've already done it. And there hasn't really been another practice for the upper body that was an equivalent to what you could get from just running with your lower body until you figure out how to use battle ropes. The rhythmic motion of the battle ropes starts to work your back, your biceps, your core, your shoulders, And all of the different movements allow you to access feelings like sprinting, but with your upper body instead of your lower body. And this is going to really help with high-intensity interval training. It's going to help with muscular endurance. It's going to help with overall strength. It's going to help with speed. It's going to help with power. It's one of those tools that's really essential to have. If you go to my backyard, I have a battle rope tied around one of my posts. If you go to the gym, they're tied around the anchors for our weight racks. It is an essential piece of unconventional training. It's an essential piece of being able to move the human body correctly. So I encourage you guys to check out the Battle Ropes page on it.com slash battle dash ropes and you'll be able to check out the page and see if it's for you. It's something that's really easy to do. You can anchor it to a kettlebell. You can tie it around a tree and it's really an essential practice that'll truly level up your fitness game. You can get the battle ropes and anything else you want for 10% off at onit.com slash Aubrey. That's onit.com slash Aubrey. There's a lot of things I talk about in the podcast and a lot of topics that I would like to get into even further with you guys. So I wanted to create a place with the Aubrey Marcus Academy Facebook group where for podcast listeners, I could drop in and have a Monday night conversation and sometimes with the help of Caitlin Howe, who's my right-hand woman in all this practice and listens to every podcast, helps me find the key moments and is really intimately involved and has a great perspective on her own. And every Monday night, we're going to be dropping in to have a chat with you guys and see what you think, answer your questions, discuss. So I hope you guys go there. Uh, Again, it's the Aubrey Marcus Academy Facebook group. You should be able to search it on Facebook and add yourself and we'll approve you. And then we'll drop in for a live call and have a good conversation about anything that comes up from the podcast. So hope to see you guys there. When I look at the people that I hold up as heroes in my life and their story provides a constant inspiration for me, Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, is one of those guys. In the 80s, he became aware of the healing potential of psychedelic medicine, including MDMA, which at that point was actually called Adam on the streets. And he became aware of what that potential was and started working immediately 
to prepare for the eventual backlash that could get that scheduled as an illegal Schedule One drug. And so from the very moment that he saw this potential in the 1980s, he's been working to get MDMA legalized as a medicine in the hands of skilled practitioners. And he has been told no so many times. I mean, to talk about persistence is one thing, but then to see the story of a man like Rick Doblin who was told no by the FDA not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, not five times, but just kept presenting his case, kept fighting in every different way that he could until now to be finally on the precipice of launching these phase three trials with full cooperation with the FDA. And to bring you guys up to speed, MAPS has completed phase two trials with 103 participants, showing that two out of every three treatment-resistant patient with post-traumatic stress disorder has been cured by three sessions of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, and that in long-term follow-ups, the patients continue to get cured. And that's why the FDA has been so cooperative. They're dedicated to the science, and science is going to bring this home. We're really on the brink of a paradigm-shifting revolution. It's really a remarkable story. He's really a remarkable man, and we're in a remarkable time. So it's a true honor to have Rick Doblin back on the Aubrey Marcus podcast. It's been a few years since he's been on, and there's been nothing but incredible news since then and incredible progress. So I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. And once again, please check out thecureisnear.com. We're going to be putting up all of the charity proceeds to go to the phase three matching donation offer that uh, a generous cryptocurrency uh, guy named the pineapple fund has put up so anything that we donate now gets doubled and all of that money is going to be going to funding these phase three trials and you'll get to learn what that's all about in this upcoming podcast with rick so if you know anybody who's experienced trauma if you've experienced trauma if you're curious about mdma you know, please share this podcast, please share this message, please share the Cure is Near page. I don't think there's a more important cause that we have in the world at this time. I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Rick, so it's been a few years since you've been on this podcast here, and there's been a pretty steady stream of good fucking news <laughs> since then. Because we got on, yeah. I think it was the 2012 Psychedelic Science Conference, was that the year? That was 2013. 2013. Yeah. And um, things were looking good. Phase two's data was coming in good. But then that whole swath of data came out. And I'll, you know, be summarizing some of that in the intro. So we don't need to go over all the details of that. But it's been pretty remarkable um, what you guys have been able to show in those years. But not only has that been really remarkable, what's been remarkable is the response and the kind of warm reception that you've gotten from the FDA. The FDA has really been our main ally, not because they're pro-psychedelic or pro-marijuana, but they're pro-science. Mm-hmm. And they're also very sympathetic to the fact that most of the treatments for psychiatry just address symptoms. And MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for a substantial portion of the people is about a cure. That's something that is a, is a paradigm-shifting thing. And you know, for, people have heard me talk about my pages, The Cure is Near. And that's a really bold thing to say, cure, because it's not the paradigm. The paradigm now is mitigate symptoms, you know, kind of manage some of the issues that are going on. And, you know, you probably have this for life, but it's okay. We'll make it a little easier on you. It's not like, no, no, the human being's remarkable and it can be fixed. 
You know, like yeah. people don't have that idea in their head even with the with the current paradigm. Yeah, not for most psychiatric problems like that. It's, I mean, the pharmaceutical industry has kind of trained you that you need daily medication for years. You've got a biochemical problem and only medicine will fix it. Yeah, it's like it's almost like this I was thinking about it like the faulty machine hypothesis. You know, it's like we've been convinced that the humans are inherently faulty machines and for some reason or another, one of, you know, a lot of us are just going to have one piece that's off and don't worry though, because we got the solution to your faulty machine and that's going to be a pill that you'll take every day rather than no humans are perfect machines in a lot of ways. We have all of these mechanisms that are able to heal almost anything. We were talking about the placebo effect today, you know, the ability yeah. for the mind to treat pretty much every known condition that's ever existed. Every clinical trial has to account for the placebo effect. So it's working on everything and we're able to do it, you know, but people discredit how powerful we are as humans. Yeah, and there are limits to the placebo effect. I mean, we can't regrow a limb. There are certain yeah. things that we're, we're, we haven't well, learned how or to do yet. has anybody ever believed <laughs> that hard enough? You know, like the, you really got to believe that you can grow a limb. I don't know. That's a hard one to believe. Yeah, and even a little bit of cure is a bit misleading in that sometimes people have the idea that in, in this example for PTSD, that we can help people cure past PTSD, but that doesn't mean that they won't get re-traumatized in the future. It's not an inoculation. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's still, uh, we're still vulnerable, always vulnerable, always, we'll always have different things that can come, but to be able to take something that happened in the past and not let it be a part of your future, you know, I mean, that's the, that's the beauty of this. Whatever, whatever's happened, there's a, a great shaman in, uh, that I've worked with out in Peru, and his name's Maestro Alberto, and his, one of his favorite things is, we can fix anything but dead. <laughs> and, you know, obviously that's, he's extending that broadly, but on, on a psycho, psychological, psychiatric model, I mean, it's looking like with the, the medicines that are available, we're getting a lot closer to that, that anything that's happening in the past, there's a chance that we can not only manage it, but there's a chance we can get to the root and really cure it. We've actually had several people who have had PTSD from Vietnam Oh wow! Decades Long time and ago, decades, decades, and are still able to get over PTSD with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. These kind of conflicts get locked in these patterns for decades, and then reinforced and reinforced. But it doesn't mean that they're necessarily permanent. Mm -hmm. There are ways to process buried trauma like that in a relatively short amount of time. That's what's most amazing: is that you could be um, struggling with PTSD from something that happened 40 or 50 years ago, and in the space of a few hours, you can still work through it. Mm. it it's just astonishing. What's the, you know, one of the phenomenon that, you know, we've seen come to pass is actually people remembering these events in the very first place. I mean, the mind has, yes. like, what is the process by which, you know, and there may be other people who have a more clinical uh, understanding of this than, but what what is the mechanism of the mind that walls off those memories? Like why why does the mind do that? To protect from pain. Yeah. So these memories that there's what's called episodic memory, which is the memory for episodes for things that happened, and then there's an emotional overlay onto those episodes. And so what we find with PTSD is that people have a difficult time remembering a lot about the episodes because the emotions are so painful. Mm. 
But under the influence of MDMA, where the fear processing part of the brain and the amygdala is reduced, then people can actually remember more and more of the trauma, what happened to them. And that actually is very important because when these memories are sort of unconscious memories linked with these terribly painful emotions, they have an influence on us. We're just not aware of it. And so one of the more remarkable things about MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD is the way that people's memories are enhanced for the trauma. I'll give you one example. Mm -hmm. I was just in Fort Collins um, a week ago, and that's going to be one of our phase three MDMA-PTSD sites. And we're going through a process now of uh, training the therapist where the each new co-therapy team, a male-female co-therapy team, gets one patient to work with where everybody knows it's MDMA. And this was a woman who had um, been severely um, traumatized. Actually, I'm sorry, this story was a, it was a man, and he'd been sexually abused as a boy. Mm. And his um, he was always resentful for his mother, and he was telling the story under in MDMA that his mother had brought him to the perpetrator, and then the perpetrator took off with him and abused him. And he always thought his mother should have protected him more, sure. and that that caused this rift in their relationship. This is now quite a few decades ago, and the therapist was saying, you know, I don't think your mother was really intentionally bringing you to the perpetrator. She didn't know this was going to happen. He said yeah. all, all the sort of mother mammals, their job is to kind of protect their their cubs. Young, then yeah. that that's what your mother was, you know, she wouldn't have knowingly done this. And then up popped a memory that was the the key in a big way to his healing, which was that the perpetrator, the last thing this perpetrator said to his mother was, Mama Bear, you can leave now. And once he remembered that his mother had, that, that the perpetrator had said that to his mother, that he recognized that the perpetrator had to separate him from his mother, that his mother was there, really wanted to protect him. And that changed everything for him. And it was just a buried, you know, from decades and decades ago, just this one little moment, but that came back under MDMA and that was a doorway to healing. Wow. It's almost so, you know, these memories, as you said, they get encoded and overlaid with emotions. And when those emotions are, you can't really access the memory without accessing the emotion to a certain degree. Yeah. So when those emotions are so high and so painful and so traumatic, to even get into the actual recall of events, you have to wade through that emotion. And that's something that we as humans, we're not, you know, we're not designed to want to go into those incredibly painful states. So the emotions actually create, sounds like the emotions actually create the wall itself. Yeah, they do. And then one of the processes um, of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD is this, um, peaceful place to look at the trauma. And so what's um, technically there's a word called fear extinction mm. so that these um, behaviors or these memories produce this fear. And then when you can look at it from a position of safety that MDMA can give you, and also the MDMA helps people process the memory so that it doesn't feel like it's always happening or always about to happen, that the the memory of the trauma for people with PTSD, it's never really in the past. It's always about to happen. Everything reminds them, triggers them of it. Right. And so with um, 
the ability to to look peacefully at the memory and bring more of the memory up from the unconscious, then when the memory, it's called memory reconsolidation. So memories are pieced together from different parts of the brain, the episode and, and the emotion are sort of put together. And then when you have had a sense of peace to look at it and process it and looking at it and are able to place it in the past, then the next time that you remember the incident, you've replaced the fear memories with this memories of, of peace and reflection and it's in the past. And that's the key to the curative effect of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, yeah. that it, it really replaces it. You reconsolidate the memory with a different emotional tone. That's, that's such, it makes so much sense as a mechanism of action of how, it, how it's healed, you know, because every time you access that, it's like just like any memory, every time you access it, and you'll, you'll, even, you'll feel the emotion but then the more you access it over years, that emotion kind of dims and the emotion kind of dims because you're subtly overriding it with your current mental state. But if you've never fully accessed and consolidated that memory, that emotion's still at peak. Yeah. But then, so not only are you accessing it again, which is part of the healing process, which is part of talking and opening up about it. That's why that, that stuff works gently over time. In general, that's why the therapy alone does some good. Yeah. You know, but then not only are you accessing it and rewriting it with a normal mental state, you're accessing and rewriting it with the best fucking mental state you've ever been in, you know, where your heart is just speaking and you're free and you're full of love. And it's really, really incredible how that happens. And I've, you know, I talked yesterday in the speech, I talked about, you know, how fortunate I've been because of the circles I've traveled in. I've been in the room when this therapy has been occurring because there's people who've decided that it is their calling to provide this medicine at risk and yeah. you know yeah. and but taking all of the safeguards that one would in a, in a trial but just taking the onus on themselves for healing and i was in a couples therapy session mm. and it was really about a reconciliation or potential conscious severance of a of a couple and they had their own issues nothing too serious but this was in that kind of classic couples therapy model which was actually one of the original indications for mdma right oh, back fantastic in fantastic for couples yeah. therapy yeah so <clears throat> it was in this facilitated couples therapy and in the first session you know headphones everybody's diving in going deep and the female participant um started recalling and had no idea but started recalling episodes of sexual trauma mm. you know right from the start and this was not even what the intention the intention was all right that we're gonna you know that person's going to work out their shit with their husband yeah. and you know all right husband wife trying to deal with their stuff but no that's not where it went and she started to piece together these memories and realized like oh wow you know and she'd had short-term she'd had always had memory issues and a few different things and then these things kind of came back and it was this initiation into healing and seeing how this had had shaped and really just remarkable thing that this you know the the intelligence of the body you know even with the intention not to go back there and look at that thing in that space and just be feeling free and it just guided her towards that towards that thing which i thought was really interesting because i think a lot of times we think oh you got to have severe trauma you got to be pointed right at it you got to go right there you know sometimes just curating the space even if the intention is something similar some of these things will come up the, the river will guide you to where you need to be the most. Yeah, we talk about that in terms of the inner healer. Yeah. That there's a wisdom to the, the psyche to bring up things from the unconscious at the appropriate time. And there's no way 
for the therapist to really predict what's going to happen. And we, we never actually use the word guide either. We're not the guide because we don't really know the territory. It's the people know the territory themselves. And it's, and this inner wisdom comes up and brings things up. And, you know, when these are unconscious, they're like filters of fear and anxiety that we see the world through. And we're not even aware that we're seeing through these filters. And so under the influence of MDMA and other psychedelics, you can kind of see these traumas, these issues that come up. And then when you resolve them, it's like you're wiping your glasses clean and you can see a little bit more clearly what's really in front of you. And most people have had um, kind of a different understanding of what memory is too. So it used to be the thought is that the memory is like a book Mm -hmm. and the book is stored in your brain and then you remember it and then you put the book back on the shelf. (laughs) But it's actually that there's like memories like a book and you remember it, but then you have to reprint the book and you store it and that's called memory reconsolidation. And that helps explain how memories can change over time as well. Yeah, And that's also the key to the therapy is that when we can change the emotional tone connected to a memory, um, then you can reconsolidate it in a different way. And one, one of the things that um, I think is so important is that we need to learn from our traumas and we need to learn from our memories. And we don't want to erase our memories or somehow or other make it so that um, they're no longer accessible. So the fact that MDMA can enhance people's memories for the trauma, that brings more up from the unconscious. You're, you have less of this unconscious filtering process. Yeah. And then people can really learn from the memories. People are, sometimes people have talked about marijuana for PTSD, that if you take marijuana right after the trauma, then your um, short-term memory will not be as um, anchored into long-term memory. And that's a scary thing for me because yeah. you, when you, particularly when you're traumatized, you need to learn the lessons from how that happened and how to avoid that in the past sure. and what that means for the world. So the fact that this MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD enhances memory for the trauma, people can really learn and heal a lot more. Yeah, and you know, for, there's people probably out there that are like, yeah, you know, some bad shit happened, but I don't even. I just want to leave it where it is. It's not affecting me. Mm. And that's, I think, one of the biggest, you know, kind of misnomers about this is like, oh, no, it's in the past. It's not affecting me. But you're not aware unconsciously, subconsciously how much this is affecting you. That temper that you think you have, that, you know, those episodes of depression or sadness or anxiety that you think is related to work or you think is related to some other thing. You know, a lot of that, a lot of those feelings come from these feelings of shame and fear and guilt and all of these anger and all of the rage all of these things that have been kind of walled off that your mind is make taking these wide berths around but it's just screaming through your whole unconscious like help me help me help me yeah. you know and you think no i'm good but you know really maybe you're not you know and, and maybe you're t- i'm surely you're tough surely you're tough enough to do it without it but what's the better way you know what's what's your potential what are you capable of without that? And I don't think you know until you go through a healing process like this. Yeah, and, and actually part of the the essence of our therapeutic approach, um, we call it sort of patient-directed or non-directive. It's that people's unconscious, that's really where the healing comes from. And there's no order for our eight-hour therapy session. So usually we give the MDMA around 10 in the morning and people around... Um, two hours later get half the initial dose 
to extend the plateau, and then the sessions last till 6 p.m. So there's an eight-hour <laughs> session. But there's there's no standardized order for when people deal with the trauma or sometimes people start talking about very happy memories mm. and they're kind of building strength to then look at the trauma. Sometimes mm. people will come straight to the trauma. Sometimes it's a different trauma than you anticipated. Yeah. That, you know, there's kind of the surface trauma that they've been telling themselves that's the issue and then there's something even deeper underneath that. And so it's this beautiful process of unfolding in a natural way. The therapist kind of holds space and then the, really what we're trying to do is help people heal themselves. We're yeah. not doing it to them. They're finding the courage as they get more and more comfortable and as the medicine takes more effect to, to just sort of free associate almost and then at some point these emotionally charged areas will come to the surface yeah. and we'll help them work through that. Do you, is is part of the protocol giving them the tapes of the session or the notes of the session? Because that, you know, in, in any ex experience that I've had, that's extremely valuable. Cause... Yeah. Yeah, we videotape and audio tape all of the sessions. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, um, it's like a river flowing by. So much is happening emotionally and people are having this just flow of imagery. People are incredibly metaphorical under the mm -hmm. influence of uh, psychedelics mm -hmm. and people speak in terms of parts of themselves or images um, but it's it's flowing a lot and we encourage people not to try to hold on to it to just keep going with the flow keep experiencing and the therapist will be taking notes as well about important points important things people have said but at the same time these videotapes um, not everybody wants to see them but um, quite a few people, patients, do want to see the videotapes, and we'll share them with them. Yeah, that's great. And one of the things, another aspect of you know being fortunate to be in that room, I've been in the room with people who, generally, I'm the, you know, I'm kind of the mentor in that, especially in matters spiritual or mm -hmm. philosophical or emotional processing. You know, I've yeah. I've collected enough wisdom where mm -hmm. I'll generally be explaining things to them, and then in the medicine. I'll just sit back and be like, you go. <laughs> like you were teaching all of us everything. I don't even want to open my mouth because you're ta they're tapped into their own highest, highest wisdom. And at that level, you know, with me being sober in the room there, I am just like a little kid looking up at, at grandpa, like, tell me more truth. You know, and so this this whole it's you know, you can create this inversion of of, you know, where the real master is the one who's tapped into their own higher wisdom no matter how much knowledge you've accumulated, no matter what. And, you know, this has been something talking to the other, like Michael and Annie and, uh -huh, and everybody yeah. who's been in the, in the rooms, uh, Tony Bosis and everybody. It's like yeah. when they're tapped in and even that video we saw of the Marine, you know, everybody in that room, everybody in the room last night at our dinner has done a lot of work, read a lot of books. But when that Marine is speaking, we're all like, preach, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like we're all just listening because it's so true and it's so right on. And it's amazing that we all have that capability. Yeah, and people have to come to things on their own in their own time. You might have a piece of wisdom, but if people aren't ready for it, yeah. it's not really going to be helpful to them. It could even be distracting to them, even though it's an idea that they have to come to at some point. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's a part of the art of being a therapist, too, is maybe getting a, a sense as to what people need to work on, but helping them work on that in their own time and not kind of leaping in and messing with their process. Yeah. But they are um, 
it's trusting it's themselves. trusting the inner wisdom you know trusting the inner their inner coach you know who's going to be helping them out yeah and we all know that the body heals itself i mean that you can have a cut and you can clean it out and you can you know put an antiseptic and put on a band-aid but you don't your body has got this inner wisdom to reconnect its shape to to rebuild itself yeah we all know that experientially but when it comes to the mind there's a similar process but because it's more invisible we don't really see it or believe it as much and that's that goes back to that faulty mechanism kind of paradigm where like oh the it's a, just a faulty mechanism we need to fix it like if we don't have that same thing that we have with the skin which is yeah it'll heal itself you know if you get a yeah. cut you know that keep it clean it'll heal itself with the mind we think oh no i was just born that way chemical imbalance you know yeah. it'd be like having a wound and being like uh, you know, blood clotting imbalance. Well, yeah, all right. a couple people have that, you know, like their blood won't clot, they're hemophiliac, and that actually is a problem. But it would be like calling everybody who gets a cut a hemophiliac. You know, like there are hemophiliacs, for sure. There are chemical imbalances. I'm not saying that doesn't exist, right. but it's not everybody. It's probably much, much, much more rare than people give it credit. Like we were mentioning in the car, bipolar was a very rare disorder. And then there came a drug to treat bipolar disorder. And it blossomed by an incredible multiple because people were thinking like, oh, well, I have a drug for that. So let's look for that and let's create this, expand this population. And it, and it creates an even larger appeal of, all right, this faulty mechanism hypothesis. Something that was probably a very small portion is now diagnosed as a very big portion. You know, Not giving the mind credit enough to go through its natural ebbs and flows. Yeah, we've been thinking about uh, once MDMA becomes a medicine, what kind of um, commercials might we make and, <laughs> and all. But basically, we don't need to make You won't any. have time to make we commercials because yeah, exactly. you'll just be fielding people who've gotten all of their friends and relatives and buddies and be like, come on. The last thing yeah. you'll want, you'll want yeah. like anti-commercials. you want, yeah. hey, everybody calm down. We're overloaded now. Please do not call <laughs> our centers. We can no longer handle the call volume. Chill well, out. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's actually very, very sad in that um, we just got... Um, Last uh, week, um, the LA site was set up and ready to go, mm-hmm. and they just put a little announcement about how they're ready to go. And we already have over 100 people want to volunteer for the study. We have um, over 20,000 people have contacted us through the website to be notified when the phase three studies start because they have PTSD. Um, there's Right now, as of, well, not right now, as of June 30th, 2016, which is about a year and a half ago, um, there was 868,000 veterans receiving disability payments from the VA for PTSD. Now it's probably up to a million. Um, There was 600,000 veterans receiving disability payments from the VA for depression, anxiety, and other mental health disorders. So roughly almost 1.5 million vets for mental health related disorders and the last time the VA put out numbers was in 2004 and it was $20,000 per person per year for disability payments for PTSD so that's right now if we use those old numbers um, as of June 30th 2016 that'd be about 17 billion dollars a year Mm -hmm. and total it's for all mental health disorders it's around 30 billion a year and these are mostly young people. This is going to yeah. go on through the decades. And yet the VA will not give us a penny for research with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. 
um, they'll let us pay to have their own therapists experiment with blending MDMA with the existing non-drug psychotherapies they have. So that for us is major progress. Yeah, I started trying to um, educate the VA about MDMA in 1990. And we worked at the San, we had doctors and therapists at the uh, San Francisco VA that wanted to do a study that MAPS would fund. I mean, I started MAPS in 86, so this is four years later. I was just trying to figure out if there were any opportunities. And the um, head of the San Francisco VA said no. It's so it's so odd because you would think like, I mean, it's just crazy how deep those stigmas run. Yeah. And it's, you know, because the VA should not only want to take care of their veterans from a compassionate standpoint, so that's one motivation to look at the science objectively. But the other is, if you can treat PTSD, you'll probably get more soldiers in the field. You know, it's just from a very practical, like, all right, if you're, you know, look, they're running ads, yeah. they're running ads on TV for soldiers, they're you know, encouraging in every football game, you know, they're paying the NFL to advertise to get more people into the military. Like one of the ways you could do it is actually cure all the veterans. First of all, it would take away a lot of the downside that's preventing people from going. So there's like very practical reasons. There's very compassionate reasons, but I guess maybe, do you think it's just the fear of what happened with the psychedelic revolution and the Vietnam war that's, that's kind of in there or is it just a general fear of drugs from this kind of dare mentality that came out in the eighties? Like where's the hesitation? Uh, I, th I think a lot of that is that it's the, the residue of this cultural trauma that we faced in the sixties when psychedelics really emerged and was identified with a counterculture and then was smashed and we're still living near the end of, um, I think the over enthusiasm for the drug war, the misguided enthusiasm for the drug war, um, one of the things we were able to do with the help of Dr. Richard Rockefeller, who came, he was the chair of the board of advisors of Doctors Without Borders. And he saw in Kosovo and Serbia, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands, millions of people, refugees with PTSD. And he wanted to know um, how to help them. And he realized there's not enough therapists, there's not enough psychiatrists. And he started getting curious about MDMA. And then we got in touch and then um, his cousin, Senator Jay Rockefeller, was on the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. And so we had these meetings that went up through the hierarchy. We actually started at um, the San Diego Naval Medical Center, where they work with Navy SEALs and Marines with PTSD, and they wanted to work with MDMA. Mm -hmm. But they said they weren't high enough in the hierarchy. We had to get the admiral's permission. Mm -hmm. So then the admiral says, okay, but I'm not high enough. Then we had to go to the Pentagon, and we had to meet um, with the assistants Secretary of the Navy, the Navy Surgeon General, the Secretary of the Navy. Then they were all supportive, but they weren't high enough in the hierarchy. Oh, wow. <laughs> it, it, it incredible. Oh, we, wow. we had to go to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs. Meanwhile, we were trying to work through the... Meanwhile, beach. there's this Navy SEAL in San Diego that's like, <laughs> come on, guys, damn, <laughs> right. I did everything you said. Yeah, and then, then we were working with the Secretary of the VA and the National Center for PTSD of the VA, and finally we had this uh, meeting. And what they... Um, told us was that they one of the reasons they wanted us to start in veterans but not in active duty soldiers is because they're trying to create um, a no drug use military other than of course the drugs that the military gives you and so they were concerned that if they were um, going to work let us work with active duty soldiers the word would get out and people are so frustrated at the treatments that are available for them now that they were worried that people would self-medicate and so they said start with veterans. 
and that's where we got permission. Because people don't self-medicate with painkillers, though. Like that doesn't ever happen. <laughs> you know, like it's crazy. Yeah. And they said it's it is a generational thing as well. They said most of the people coming into the military are young, sure. and they come from a different culture. They're they're they've grown up during a liberalization of marijuana laws, and they don't see it as such a demon drug. And um, and there's they've heard a lot of stories about therapeutic use of MDMA. So I, th I think the, the big concern is, yeah, the, the symbolic value of psychedelics as part of the anti-war movement, part of, part of counterculture, but that's fading. And, and we're doing our very best to try to reinforce the idea that people can have these experiences and it doesn't mean that they want to drop out and live on a farm and grow soybeans and become vegan and you know, <laughs> that's probably the greatest fear that I hear, you know, when there's, I'm talking to a MMA fighter or an yes. athlete or something like that. They say, ah, oh, you know, all your journeys sound amazing, Aubrey, but you know, I'm so, I'm just terrified that I won't be a fighter anymore if I take this. You know, <laughs> I'm all, and it's a funny thing because it's, it's almost hypothesizing that the medicine itself has a will and that it's yeah. going to either, it's going to impose that will. And that will is, it's a, it's like, it's like you're, hanging out with your vegan friend who's really persuasive you know and he's going to tell you not to eat meat and he's going to convince you of this stuff and it's, it's just not how it works if something if your own inner wisdom tells you that you shouldn't be doing that that's one thing but typically you know if you're on a path and that's the path that you love it's just going to enforce that it's just going to say all right here's how you do it and here's how you do it better you know it's not it doesn't have an opinion there's no vested interest in these medicines other than what you yourself know and if you yourself want to tell yourself to take a different course that's something you should know <laughs> you yeah. know that's something you should yeah. want to know yeah you know but uh yeah it's, it's because of the association with some of the types who have taken it they think that that's the result but it's not causal you know it's just correlative yeah, yeah. i like the word that you used association because if there is an agenda i would say it's the opposite of disassociation Mm -hmm. So what we find is a lot of times when people are traumatized, particularly at a young age, the the defense, all that they can do is dissociate so that they're no longer there in a way. Something's happening to their body, but you know, they're they've sort of removed themselves. And what we find is that those people that are the highest on dissociation, and we have scales to measure that, um, take the longest to heal because they have to sort of come back into um, an integrated sense with their with their body and with their mind. And so if there is an agenda, it's to take the split apart pieces of ourselves mm. that we've put into the shadow or we've rejected or are too painful and to try to bring them together into more of a unified whole, a unified personality. And I think that's where we see people making a lot of progress from... Um, shadow sides of themselves or painful sides of themselves that they learn to integrate yeah and yeah. yet once you're integrated there's so many different ways to express that that for some people it could be really appropriate to do in a you know in a fighting context mm -hmm. i mean hopefully not where they're really well, trying to hurt somebody yeah, yeah in sport. a sport context yeah so I think people are scared of their own inner wisdom that that might make them change sure. something, and they, you know, they've got a pattern, they like it, they don't want to change, and you know, those um, are probably the people who would benefit the most from doing sure. it, you know, because if you've got this sort of buried intuition that maybe there's a different direction for you, 
and it does cause certain disruptions in your life and your patterns. But uh, You know what you don't want to do, everybody who's afraid of that? What you don't want to do is you don't want to take the ultimate psychedelic that we're all going to take, and that one's called death. And when you have that one, that's not the one you want to wake your ass up and be like, what the fuck was I doing? You know, like, how about you, you, take, a, you take one a little earlier on the journey, maybe where you can correct it in this life, you know, rather than waiting till you die and waking up and being like, oh my God, you know, I shouldn't have been doing that my whole life or being on your deathbed. You know, I've read the reports of Bronnie Ware, this palliative care nurse mm-hmm. and talking about all the commonalities between the deathbed regrets. Like, don't be that guy. Don't be that girl. Yeah. No, don't don't be the person there that hasn't taken the time to reflect upon your life and make sure that you're doing what your heart sings for. You know, go find that. Go figure it out. You owe it to yourself. Yeah, you know, sometimes actually it's easier to die physically than it is to change who you think you are. So what we what we find is that um under the influence of the classic psychedelics, there's um, what we are calling, um, what neuroscience has been finding, it's called the default mode network. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of your resting ego state. And the classic psychedelics weaken this network in the brain so that your normal ways of processing information according to your priorities of food and shelter and companionship and sex and love, that, that that's weakened and you get a flood of material that's coming to the surface. And, and often people when they're losing their their primary sort of point of orientation, often that, that can be called ego death in a way. Ego doesn't really die, it just gets sort of replaced in the proper order. Um, but people are, are so scared of that, this ego death, that they turn it into physical death. They become scared of actually yeah. dying, even though there's nothing in these psychedelics that's gonna cause them to actually die, but the change in who we think we are can be more difficult and more painful than yeah well if you're well if you're identified as the ego if that is who you think you are your identity your career your girlfriend your wife your husband whatever all of these things that are wrapped up in your identity and your ego if if your business card you know (laughs) if that's who you are and you really think that's who you are, then of course, that is a that is a death of who your identity is. But what the psychedelics will do, will they'll give you a little bit of separation from that and say, oh, that's a part of me, part of me that's worthy of love and has collected a lot of interesting things and interesting traits, but that's not me. I'm this something else. And so it's a lot easier to let that other side go and then reawaken that side of yourself that, you know, could people have called it many things your consciousness your higher self your divine self your true self you know this kind of your inner wisdom you know that part of you that's uh that really belongs at the helm of the starship you know (laughs) rather than the ego yeah and i I think this concept of ego death is really a little bit misleading because metaphorically it's like um back when people thought that the earth was the center of the universe and the sun revolved around the earth and that um you know that that's in a sense what the ego is like. We think the whole world revolves around us. And an ego death is to recognize that we're revolving around something even bigger, you know, mm. life itself. And that, you know, we're revolving, the earth is revolving around the sun, the sun's moving in space. But so the ego doesn't die, but it just finds a more proper place, a more yeah. humble place. And once people can experience that through support, move through the terror of letting go of who they think they are and finding that there's still um, 
a new orientation that can be deeper and more joyous and more relaxing. And yet the, you still have to take care of yourself. You, we are still individuals living in a time-bound system of birth and death, and we, we have to pay attention to what our own needs are as well, but we're not the center of the universe. Right, as the ego would tell us. Yeah. All right, so let's fast forward to the future here, and you gave, you gave a bit of a timeline. <laughs> and, um, you know, and we're going to talk about some of the opportunities for donation that we have coming up, but let's, let's fast forward. All things go well, and we're, you're able to raise the money, get things going on time. Take us through you know, the timeline of potential legalization. I think you mentioned the date of 2021 as yeah, kind of yeah. the potential target. Yeah. So uh, I think let's go back just a tiny bit to um, August 15th. Uh, 2017, which isn't that far mm-hmm. uh, ago. And that's the day that um, FDA um, accepted our application to have MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD designated as a breakthrough therapy. So huge. Yeah. It, it's it, you know More than two-thirds of the applications from Big Pharma to have their drugs declared breakthrough are rejected. It's for the most promising drugs. And so what that means is that the FDA is now... Uh, seeing themselves as partnering with us to develop MDMA through phase three to see if the data that we generate will indeed prove safety and efficacy to make it into a medicine. And so with that breakthrough therapy designation, that's enhancing our timelines a bit. So what we're doing right now, and right now is uh, you know here in February of 2018, we're completing the final stages of training 84 therapists in 42 male-female co-therapy teams uh, to work with PTSD patients that are um, chronic, severe PTSD patients. And we're, we're doing that. We've had a lot of training so far, but now they're all getting one patient in a protocol, open label. Everybody knows it's MDMA to complete their training, getting feedback from our training team. So starting in... Um, June of 2018, we're going to start the formal phase three studies. And from the FDA and the negotiations that we've had with them um, during a process called special protocol assessment, that was a seven-month process where we negotiated every aspect of the protocol design, and FDA gave us an agreement letter on July 28th um, so that they're formally bound now to approve the drug if this design gets statistically significant evidence of efficacy and no new safety concerns arise um, we've negotiated that we're going to need um, at a minimum 200 subjects in phase three mm-hmm. in two 100-person studies, and we have to get statistical significance in each of those. Um, there's a process called interim analysis that as the studies are going, when there's 60% of, of the people that have hit the primary outcome measure, a small group will be unblinded, the data monitoring committee, and they'll tell us if we need to add more subjects to get significant. So we're anticipating between two and 300 subjects, but we're thinking that starting in June of 2018, by um, the summer of 2020, we'll have had all the data that we need. And then it will take us um, several months to process the data, to prepare all this for submission to FDA, and we anticipate in 2021 that MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD will be approved as a medicine in the U.S. We're also, right now, starting to negotiate with the European Medicines Agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a call I just got right before we started awesome. here this podcast about our, our documents ready to go in. Um, and we think by the end of this, this summer, also, we'll have an agreement with the European Medicines Agency. And we hope they'll be on a similar timetable 
2021. Um, we are also, uh, we just recently shipped MDMA to Brazil. We're shipping some to the Netherlands. We're kind of getting um, other countries started and, and, and preparing. So once it's approved, let's say in 2021, then we think that there's gonna be a gradual but fairly rapid rollout of psychedelic clinics where these treatments will take place. Um, right now, ketamine is being used more and more for the treatment of depression. So these um, psychedelic clinics will not just be like an MDMA clinic or a ketamine clinic. There's other groups that, that you've been helping too, which are trying to develop psilocybin into mm -hmm. a medicine for depression. So we think that they'll be administered in these specialized psychedelic clinics. God, could, let's just let's just take a moment, everybody. Let's just take a moment <laughs> and imagine that. Let's imagine that you're going through some hard shit. You know, <laughs> times are tough, and you can't figure things out, and you have some stuff that's rattling around in your head, and you say, "Yeah, I'm going to stop by my psychedelic clinic." <laughs> And it's lovely in there. It smells like incense. There's nice music. There's a credentialed doctor who knows the full gamut of psychiatric options, but also the full gamut of psychedelic medicines. And they're there to greet you warmly. There's kind people waiting for you at the waiting room, and they start talking to you. You know, it's not this massive intake form and cold. And it's just, you know, you'll fill out the forms, but they'll start talking to you. Hey, you know, what's going on? And then eventually you'll see the head of the, you know, psychiatric medicine there, and they'll start talking to you. Oh, well, I think actually, you know, a psilocybin session might be, you know, exactly what would be best for you in this case and, you know, talk you through that protocol. But, you know, we might want to follow up with an MDMA session to make sure that you've integrated that properly and that you're on the right course and there isn't any trauma. And how does that sound to you? Yeah, that sounds great. You know, and you schedule it and you go in and you put your headphones on, you're blindfold and you work on your trauma and your issues and maybe you speak to your dead relatives or maybe uh, some other random things happen while you're there but you're there for the work and for the medicine and you come out and you come out different than when you walked in and not you're not running to the pharmacy to go get some pill bottle that you're going to be shackled to like a, like yeah. this is your new slave collar you come out that day because you know some of the psilocybin indications from after it's single doses right that are curing some of these indications for 80% of people. So you come out that day and you're different that day. Like that, that is possible. It's yeah. not like, oh yeah, wouldn't that be wonderful? No, 20 fucking 21. That's, <laughs> that's like in an instant. We're gonna yeah. blink. I'm gonna eat a bunch of sandwiches and you know work out and all of a sudden it's gonna be 2021. <laughs> like out of the years pass. Like they just go and that's yeah. that's that can happen but we need to help that happen too. We need to raise the awareness so that it's acceptable culturally. And we need to help raise the funds so that you guys can do the work that you need and Hefter can do the work that they need. And, yeah. But it's not far away. Well, it's even closer than 2021. because yes. um, even better news. <laughs> yeah, because um, there's a program that the FDA have has that's called Expanded Access. And what that means is that if you have a... Uh, condition that the currently available medications or treatments have not sufficiently helped and there's a drug that's being researched for that condition that there's a way to provide access before the drug is approved and so as long as we have the phase three studies fully um, populated and moving forward as quickly as possible and, and I indicated that we 
are going to need a minimum of 200, sometimes between two and 300 people. But with these 20,000 people already on our waiting list to be notified about the studies, there's way more people, millions and millions of people that need treatment for PTSD. And so under this expanded access program, people can pay for their own treatment. The pharmaceutical company sponsor, in this case MAPS, can only sell the drug at cost, which is totally fine. And What's that? This, co- what's that cost? Well, yeah. <laughs> what's that cost? Well, what's that cost, Rick? <laughs> well, there's some people who need enough to get ripped off out of here. <laughs> well, our cost is actually way higher. I'm sure because I'm sure. of all the procedures that we have to go through. Yeah. So you know, the, you know, our cost is going to be way well above what the uh, black market price is. Unfortunately, That's what and, it should. And uh, a premium, lot of the black market, market stuff is not really actually MDMA at all. But yeah. But more of the ideas, though, that we are going to be starting in the end of 2018 to train more therapists, not for phase three, but for expanded access. So we think in the summer of 2019, and, and we hope one of these expanded access sites will be here in Austin with some of the people I we met so. last night. Yeah. But they'll be able to be um, a lot of people accessing this outside of the phase three studies prior to the actual approval. And mo- most people also... You know, we're talking about drugs all the time. It's about psychedelics. It's this drug. It's that drug. But actually, really, we're talking about anti-drug strategies. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're trying to have a short-term intervention that can be several months. Our intervention is three and a half months, with three MDMA sessions only, one month apart, with twelve ninety-minute non-drug psychotherapy sessions as part of the treatment package. Three before. To the first MDMA session to prepare and then three after each MDMA session to integrate it. But in that period of time, um, a lot of deep work can can take place. And our goal is to try to make it so people don't need drugs afterwards, yeah. that they're free from that. They've made a change in their life. And we've done um, one follow-up study to one of our first um, phase two pilot studies that was done an average of three and a half years after the last treatment. And what we found is, on average, that um, the symptom scores for PTSD were even lower at three and a half years than they were at the two months and one year mark. Now, some people relapse, but once you start this healing process, I mean, once you start getting people healthy, it sort of gets reinforcing. Yeah, and they keep getting healthier. So, uh, but but I do think that the visioning that you did, mm-hmm. that's really absolutely essential because. Yeah. You have to kind of, and I'm sure that's true with a lot of athletes that, that you do this mental visualization, visualization of yeah. doing things before you do it. And so I think this vision for people to imagine walking down the street and, um, oh, there's a Starbucks, you know, there's a Subway. Oh, there's my psychedelic clinic. Yeah, see those, They'll, see that MAPS logo on there and go, ah, ah, I can yeah, fix myself. Yeah. We and, can fix this thing. Well, right now in America, there's 14,500 drug abuse treatment centers and what drives drug abuse a lot is people running from pain and running from trauma. Sure. And so you could imagine that it's there could be a psychedelic to, It's an attempt to solve a problem, as Gabo Mate says. Yeah, yeah. There, there's 6,000 hospices right now in America where people go to have a more humane uh, encounter with death. And so I, I think there'll be you know, 6, 10, 14,000 psychedelic clinics throughout America, more through Europe. And, and that vision of how that can be done without causing the social disruption that people were scared about. It's not going to be 
uh, everybody goes to get their psychedelic experience and then they drop out of society. It's people are going to participate even more. And so I think that's the key change from the 60s is this idea that this is not a counterculture phenomenon. This is moving towards the mainstream. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as you become a more integrated, whole, healthy, happy individual, then the more you'll naturally want to give to others, the more you'll want to give to the community. This idea of, you know, pulling away, it's the opposite of what the ethos is now. The opposite is now is let's all bring everything in, you know? So, you know, and as you see, you know, the most radically inclusive communities, the communities like Burning Man are infused with psychedelics and it's not them trying to i mean the whole idea is radical inclusion it's not radical exclusion it's not we're burning man fuck the world (laughs) you know the idea is all right let's take this idea and welcome everybody and so it's really the opposite idea and that's exactly what you're speaking to yeah yeah and even with burning man with all of the uh, the regional events it's sort of taking it away from the center and having it more widely distributed yeah but also even at burning man a lot of people in the most you know, in that environment that is fairly supportive for psychedelic experiences, a lot of people still get in over their heads, sure. and over their hearts. And when you look at this as uh, at the, as these drugs as recreational or as just to have, um, you know, entertaining experiences, I think people are setting themselves up for potential problems because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as you described uh, before about um the, the couples therapy and then up comes memories of sexual abuse from yeah. this woman that that the proper attitude when you take these substances is that you don't really know what's going to happen it's true your unconscious is going to bring up you might think you're trying to listen to glitch mob and then all of a sudden yeah. you're in a sexual abuse repressed memory you know like that's the that's yeah. the nature of this and that's why appropriate set and setting and care and understanding with these is absolutely essential yeah that's why we've started what we call the zendo project so Mm -hmm. at burning man um we have brought therapists and psychiatrists and um, healthcare workers um, to volunteer to help people that have difficult psychedelic experiences that they intended to have in a party setting but then it got a little bit more serious and complicated and they didn't know what to do and this last year at Burning Man, we had 900 people volunteer to work at Zendo. We set it up for uh, 24 hours a day for seven days. We had over 660 people come for services. Yeah, it's, and it's incredible. most people that do that end up leaving having learned something important. Uh, one, one of our key messages is, well, the four principles of Zendo, the first is create a safe space. You need a safe space to feel that you can turn inward, that you're protected from the outside world, that somebody is, is caring for you, and that you can be defenseless in a way from the outside world by looking at the interior world. And then we say that it's important to talk through, not talk down, that you don't want to bring people away like you you know this drug sure. will go away you know what is the problem talk them through the problems and there is a way through and we also emphasize um, sitting not guiding which means that we provide we're sitting with people we're providing a safe space for them but they know where they need to go their unconscious is the guide and and they're we're trying to empower people to heal themselves. Yeah. That we're not the experts from the outside manipulating and doing and giving them some insight. They have to come up with it itself. But I think the most important of the four principles is that difficult is not the same as bad. And a lot of times when people are out to have a, 
a a party or they they take these drugs and something difficult starts coming up they think this is now going downhill a bad trip bad trip and i got to block it and yeah. and what we see from zendo and and we do this at other events all over the world is that those can be the most healing and the most educational if you can be supported to work through the painful emotions that are coming and integrate into a larger whole and so i, I think what we're hoping for is that we're building a post-prohibition world. We're, we're building tools, technologies, social systems, so that once we do start having this um, network of clinics, so to, to sort of go further into the future, yeah. so starting, 2020, starting 2019 with these expanded access clinics and then starting 2021 with actual approval where insurance companies will start paying for this, then we're gonna have a period of um, 10 to 15 years where there's going to be a rollout of thousands and thousands of psychedelic clinics. And I think somewhere around 2025, some people think it's sooner, hard to say, I think we'll have federal legalization of marijuana. And then we'll have um, maybe a decade of the culture getting used to that. And then I think 2035, we'll have um, the end of prohibition for psychedelics and people will have the human right to uh, to do it on their own. And, and then by 2050 we'll, we'll look back at us in in the early 2000s and say what what were we thinking the world is so much better now you yeah know? and that's the that's the future we have to build and that's why you know yesterday i was i was saying in that speech again like i'm hopeful you know i'm hopeful i'm not the pessimist out there that the world's gone to shit because i know how powerful these yeah. tools are i know how powerful these medicines are and i know that when they're deployed in mass with intelligence behind it with guided by you know people who really know how to either hold space through the education through the zendo or actually clinically hold space yeah. in the medicinal side when that knowledge is pervasive and people are following those principles and the medicine is available i know what the potential is and so i'm you know i'm very i'm not i'm not only hopeful i'm confident you know i'm confident in humans and i'm confident in our country and i'm confident in the world and uh and that's the future that we're we're trying to build and we got to wrap this up but right now you know um for the next month after this podcast, so I should be releasing it around Valentine's Day, but um, <clears throat> until March 10th, right. there's an incredible generous offer from uh, a very mysterious man named Mr. <laughs> Pine. We call him Mr. We don't really know for sure, but the Pineapple Fund, which is a, a cryptocurrency kind of donation yeah. um, aggregation or platform, and they've offered to match up to $4 million donated to MAPS for the phase three trials. Yeah. So. Look, everyone, if you've ever wanted to contribute to a cause, first of all, there's not a more impactful cause that you could potentially contribute to. I mean, the ease of suffering throughout the world that this can create and this can facilitate is just a tidal wave of a tidal wave of relief for the world. So there is not a better cause. And then there's also not a better time. Right. Like this is the absolute best time. Your donations are going to get doubled. And it's right at the tipping point of these phase three. We're so close. And even even for that enhanced compassionate access, you know, it could be 2019, 2020, where your friends who came back from war, those people who've been dealing with trauma, you'll have a place to potentially refer them. You know, there'll be options on the table. And we just need to push that boulder. It's a little bit further, a little bit further. So I really encourage everybody. We're going to have the donation uh, up through March 10th. Go 
on the Cure is Near platform. So everybody, if you're interested, go to the Cure is Near. That's going to go directly to the MAPS Phase 3 for this matching fund. Wow. And uh, be, that's let's, wonderful. Let's, see, let's see what we can do, everybody. Let's yeah. just do our best and, and be a part of this, be a part of this process, be a part of this genuine yeah. revolution. Together we can do it. We can fucking do it. We can, we can do it. That vision that we all got to engage in, we can do that. Well, and, and speaking of visions, um, the whole Pineapple Fund, um, I don't know who Pine is. We've been communicating by email. He's already sent us a million dollars worth of Bitcoins, and now he's given us this $4 million match. But I asked him if he would write an article for the MAPS Bulletin about how this came about, and he's, he's agreed to do that. Cool. And, but one of the things he said was that... Um, he was very um, struggling with personality issues and, and depression and um, looked around at uh, different kind of treatments and decided to try ketamine, which is being used more and more for the treatment of depression and yeah. other indications. And under the influence of ketamine, he had this vision that um, helping others would be good for himself and would help him deal with his issues and then he decided to create this pineapple fund to give away you know mega mega millions from his uh, bitcoin earnings yeah but it was a so vision. also if you're super rich and you're listening to this and you're unhappy as Don't shit take ketamine yeah. <laughs> or do take ketamine <laughs> yeah follow the follow pines approach and realize hey maybe one of the reasons i'm so fucking unhappy is i'm hoarding all this money and i just need to share the love i need to spread exactly. it with people i need to make some people happy i need to change the fucking world no matter how shitty a person you were you have the chance right now to help change the world you know that's the message yeah, and and I think even uh, in the early days, so you know, Maps was now thirty two years old, where it wasn't as clear that the world is aligning and things are opening up. Um, even if for me, I, I wasn't sure that it would work. That it, you know, I'm I'm a little bit amazed every day I wake up now to see how much progress. I mean, it has been thirty two years, but um, just the effort itself, I, I learned to recognize that trying to build a better world was satisfying in and of itself and necessary whether or not it actually succeeded. That yeah, we all had to try. And, and I think that's the, the moment of courage where you say, um, I'm going to try this regardless of whether it works because it's a worthy mission. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, as long as you're focusing on the process, you, you can't, we're not responsible for the outcome. We're only responsible for those immediate yeah. choices. We're only responsible yeah. for the trying. We're only responsible that's for exactly. doing what we can do. You know, so don't, worry about whether this will happen or this will happen or this administration or whatever we just got to try exactly we just got to try exactly. our best and that's yeah. all we can ever do and if we do try our best then we have no regrets yeah and i feel i'm just so particularly um fortunate to be alive and seeing this change and i just think about the women suffragettes in the 1800s or the anti-slavery people mm -hmm. in the 1700s or most people that work towards um progressive social change don't get to live to see it they're just yeah building uh, the ground, tilling the soil, planting the seeds. And, you know, and these are multi-generational changes. I mean, we're talking already about 50 years since the psychedelic 60s that our culture is just starting to integrate it. So for us to be alive in a time where the changes are happening before our eyes, it's rather yeah. astonishing. Yeah, to be able to move past these times of tyranny over our consciousness, you know, to yeah. liberate ourselves from the slavery of others controlling what we can do with our own minds and hearts. And we'll, we'll see that time. Yeah, and the world does, uh, you know, we as a species have incredible challenges ahead. 
with what we're doing to the planet. And yeah, it can't can't other. come at a better time. <laughs> right. Like it can't come at a better time, you know. Yeah. And uh, and that just that also, you know, is one of the things that you know gives me some gives me some hope and faith too. It just seems like everything's lining up when we need it to line up. You know, like we need this to happen. We need people to wake up. We need to start caring for each other and the planet in a much better way because the cost is getting higher and higher. So let's let's get this done let's yeah. do our best and you know if the whole thing goes up in a blaze at least we'll know we went out on our shield <laughs> you know that old spot ethos yeah and it's um it's a bipartisan thing too i mean yeah. what we're finding is um across the political spectrum people are sympathetic with healing trauma and that that's really it's a human something condition. we can come together it's not together. a republican or a democrat exactly thing right. it's a human thing it's yeah. a human being thing yeah. whatever you want to do with your politics or your taxes or whatever this is right. about human being stuff right and that's something everybody can get behind and also veterans shit you know who's not grateful for the sacrifice they have so well, that's we, a good point to me we make. wouldn't have our freedoms without them and that's so true. i think it's um a moral obligation i mean the the part that's been the hardest for me um and i've been the slowest to wake up on is actually the amount of trauma that police officers go through sure. as part of their job and you know i've often felt like um uh, the prey and they're the predators mm-hmm. <laughs> and but but more recently i'd say over the last five six years i've really been um understanding the pressures that the police officers are going through and we, we actually had one police officer in our study um and, and in a mind-boggling situation my own nephew now entered the police force oh, wow. from my, my sister who's a bunch more conservative than I am and I've never really been able to get her to do MDMA or <laughs> smoke pot or anything but her son has become a police officer and he's an open-minded police officer in it's Washington beautiful. DC and so now I have that in the family and so you know we, we are trying to reach out to all segments of society and you know even though the police have been um, given the responsibility to patrol the drug you know run the drug war um, they're also suffering under it as well and yep. in other ways. And so we really need to ha- have an alliance. Um, I think those of us that um, are really more peace-loving, we, we really need the police. And we want them to be um, on our, you know, we want to work together with them. And yep. if we can end this drug war, which is, you know, victimless crimes that shouldn't be crimes, then I think... And police can just be heroes. Yeah, instead of trying to harass us exactly <laughs> you know then they can genuinely be what their intention was from the start yeah, yeah. well rick you got to get to the airport yeah we could talk forever <laughs> it's been an awesome pleasure to have you here in town and wow. uh, we'll have to do this more often yeah. it's, it's great to check in on you i mean things are happening so fast now it's just uh i'm just so yeah. grateful for everything uh, that you've done and the whole maps team we have allison and jade in the back watching this podcast here and the contributions they've made and everybody back in san francisco and everybody who's been doing the work everybody who's donated all the people all you guys who've given 10 20 bucks to the cure is near like fucking thank you like thank you yeah this is a massive team effort yeah 100 percent. goodbye everybody peace there are many challenges facing our world right now and a lot of causes that need our support But I truly believe that the one thing that can do the absolute most good is the legalization of psychedelic medicines. You've heard some of the amazing stories with these amazing guests. It has the potential to cure trauma, depression, anxiety, addiction, these plagues that our society is suffering from and will continue to suffer from unless we can bring a cure. 
the opportunity for us to fund these clinical trials and potentially legalize psychedelic medicine is right in our hands. It's not that much money. We just need a little bit of support. I set up a page at thecureisnear.com. Once again, that's thecureisnear.com. Absolutely anything helps. You can donate five bucks. You can just share it with somebody who has five bucks. You can split five bucks and each give 250. It doesn't matter. They need our support. It's not that much more money left and we might be able to have the tool that can start to cure the world. So please, check it out. Out of curiosity, out of interest, out of love, out of compassion, for whatever reason, just check out the page, thecureisnear.com, and see if you can find it in your heart to help us out.